It can be hard to see the challenges the people we work with are facing. Addressing these invisible struggles can make us and our companies healthier. Join Holly Robinson-Pete on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. For years, manufacturers have left the United States for factories abroad. And for years, politicians have tried to get them back. The Trump administration's focus on trade and tariffs is meant in part to encourage manufacturers to make stuff in America. We will enact trade deals that ensure more products are promptly stamped with the words, Made in the USA. Everything he's done is designed to bring companies back home or to stay home. That's Larry Kudlow, the top White House economic advisor. The administration is essentially trying to address a decades-long drop in U.S. manufacturing, where the number of jobs has fallen 25% since 2000. But American companies haven't moved their manufacturing back to the U.S. in a major way. In large part, that's because making new products here is not easy or financially practical. But one company made the unusual choice to try. Today on the show, one attempt to make a new shoe from start to finish in the United States, and what it takes to be made in America. Welcome to The Journal. I'm Kate Leinbaugh. And I'm Ryan Knudsen. It's Friday, July 12th. One all-American brand, the Red Wing Shoe Company, has been making shoes in the U.S. for over 100 years. And the ethos of the company is very much tied to Made in America. Red Wing's been around for 114 years. It was started by a group of folks in Red Wing, Minnesota, and it's still based there. Red Wing is a small town in the bluffs of the Mississippi River. Close to Minneapolis? or You have to drive a little outside of Minneapolis. There's a bunch of farm area in between Minneapolis and Red Wing. They have their headquarters in the town. Ruth Simon covers small business. She recently visited Red Wing's Minnesota factory to report on how this company has kept making some of its shoes in the U.S. And it's a commitment that goes way back. During World War I, Red Wing was a leading shoe manufacturer for the U.S. military. And these days, its leather boots are found on the feet of American workers. What Red Wing is best known for are these very durable work boots. They're worn by loggers. They're worn by people who work in oil fields. Worn by some podcast hosts? They might be worn by some podcast hosts, although I'm not sure. You have the steel toe boots. How long did it take you to break them in? (laughs) I've had them since (laughs) the 80s, so it's been a while. Those steel-toed boots that I love so much are still made in America. But as Red Wing grew over time, it realized it was cheaper to make some of its shoes overseas. Now, more than two-thirds of its shoes are manufactured outside the U.S. But recently, Red Wing set out to do something it hadn't done in 20 years. The company tried to make a new boot where every part, the leather, the shoelace, the assembly, all happened in the U.S. It started when the CEO realized there was an opportunity staring him in the face. There is a balcony that overlooks the manufacturing floor, and... 
the shifts were changing, and he looked down at the second shift, which is smaller than the first shift, and there were workstations that were dim and fewer people there. And he said, we have this plant here. We have these stores. We have people who want to buy our products. We can get them out faster if we make them here. So he says to to one of the people who works for him, wouldn't it be great if we could do this? Then what happens? So a whole bunch of things have to happen before the shoes roll off the production line. It's not like making a sandwich. This is, this is, I mean, I, I have to tell you It's that, more complex that than a making, grilled cheese. Making a shoe is so much more complex than making a grilled cheese sandwich. When I went to the factory, I think the thing that struck me the most was there are so many steps in making a shoe or a boot, and you have no idea. So I came back, and I'm, like, looking at my shoes and looking at all the different pieces. So this new shoe that Red Wing wanted to make, did they make it at the factory you visited? Yes. Early on, as other companies were moving abroad, Red Wing moved some of its production abroad, but it kept making shoes in the U.S., But to have that continue, they had to do a bunch of things. They bought two factories as other people were abandoning the U.S. They bought equipment cheaply, 10 cents on the dollar. They also bought their leather tannery to make sure even as a lot of the footwear industry moved offshore, they had a supply of this very, very important raw material. So it sounds like... They already have a big advantage over a lot of U.S. companies when it comes to being able to manufacture things in the U.S. But what else did they have to do in order to make this shoe entirely in the U.S.? They had to do a lot of things. They had continued making work boots in the U.S., but they hadn't made a new work boot from cut to box, meaning the whole thing, in the U.S. for more than two decades. So the first was they had to hire more production engineers who could help take the idea of a new boot from idea to something that would roll off the production line. They also had to think about how to design the boot so it would work well for their U.S. factory. In the U.S., they're really good in this Red Wing plant at making boots that have larger pieces of leather, And that's partly because the labor costs are higher. So they had to design a boot that had fewer pieces, but met all of their other requirements and was a very good, solid boot. Then they also had a new way they wanted to do this boot that it wasn't a totally new technology for the world, but it was a new technology for the plant. And it's not like saying, okay, we've been making vanilla cakes and we're going to make chocolate cakes and we're just going to throw some cocoa powder in there. You have to get the recipe right. And so they had to think about curing times, which is how long it rests between steps. And then after all of that, they had to build a new production line. They bought new equipment. They had to train people to work on this new equipment. The point here is if you want to make it in the U.S., you have to do a lot of things. Is it more than they have to do in developing a new boot elsewhere? It was longer, and I think it was more work because they had to reflex those muscles, which they hadn't been using for a while. It wasn't just like saying, we can do waving a wand and we're going to do that tomorrow. Did they think about price point as well? Well, because this is a U.S.-made boot, this is going to be a premium boot. I don't want you to think that they're just doing this out of the goodness of their heart. This is profitable for them. 
you know, someone else might make the same shoes and make a bigger profit by doing the offshore. But what they say is when they control all the pieces of their puzzle, which means they control the leather from the tannery, they control the manufacturing process, and they control the distribution, they can make good money. They're also a private company. If they were a publicly traded company and stockholders were pressuring them to maximize their earnings, it might be a harder thing for them to do. Red Wing has made choices that a publicly traded company would not make. It's a different business model and a different way of operating. What do you mean by that? So I think as a privately held company, Red Wing decided if at all possible, they wanted to stay in the U.S. By staying in the U.S., it meant they had to work hard to make sure that they had a good supply chain. And by staying in the U.S., we're talking about keeping a portion of their production in the U.S. because they moved some of it overseas. Yes, yes. They definitely moved a bunch of their their shoes overseas. But if you want to make things in the U.S., you need to have all the components. And so one of the things that happened to them is they have a particular kind of shoelace that was very important for their boots, and the maker of it went out of business. And so they sent a team to work with other shoelace companies to produce the kind of shoelace they wanted. I feel like a shoelace, which is like what? Like you get it at the drugstore for 75 cents? It seems to me like it's exactly the sort of thing that you would just outsource to some supplier in China. Sure, but they wanted the shoelace to be made in the U.S. to their specifications. Red Wing, they're responding to these private shareholders who have a long-term view and seem to share a certain commitment to making things in the U.S. and to the Red Wing community, they can make money, but maybe not the most money possible. Publicly traded companies are often focused on short-term decisions. What are my earnings going to be in the next quarter? What are the numbers that I'm going to show? So Red Wing has been able to take a longer view and do things a little bit differently. When did these boots come out on the market? They've just come out this year. It was a process that took them, you know, more than two years from start to getting them into the stores. Two years seems like a long time. Did the CEO feel like making this boot in America was a heavy lift, that it was hard to get done? Yeah, I think it was. Um, one of the things he said to me is when you don't do something for a long time, you lose that skill set. So they had to work hard at it. I mean, it's not something where they could say, oh, we want to make a new boot, and one month later it rolls off the production line. It's not fast fashion. Because that's it's, how that <laughs> works, right? It's not fast fashion. But even if you're making products abroad, there is a production ramp-up time. What is the name of this boot? The boot is called the Burnside, and it's named after the plant that it's made at. How much is the Burnside? It sells for as much as $320. How did they look? They look good. They're very proud of these boots. Without a doubt, it's one of the finest work boots in the legendary, hard-working history of the Red Wing Shoe Company. Which is why the Burnside is more than just a boot. It's our handcrafted, triple-stitched tribute to the American worker.
Did you buy a pair? My feet are too small. And <laughs> <laughs> Would U.S. manufacturing work for something that's more of a mass market product, $50 sneaker or? I think it depends on what the shoe is, what your price point is, who your customer is. So New Balance makes, you know, some of their their footwear in the U.S. They also make footwear that they sell to the military. Other people do it, but it's hard. Right, it's hard. But Red Wing was able to do it, even if it took two years. What do you think Red Wing's experience says about manufacturing in the U.S. right now? I think it says it's possible, but you have to be committed to it, and it takes work. They've said they have a list of shoes or possibilities for shoes that they would like to do the same thing. But I think it's important to understand simply imposing or not imposing tariffs isn't going to create this flood of U.S.-made shoes. It is a complicated process. It takes work. It takes a commitment to U.S. manufacturing. And it's particularly hard to do if you're a new company and you don't have the skills, you don't have the supply chain, or if you're bringing it back. It's not as simple as saying, okay, today I'm going to make it in the U.S. Yesterday I made it somewhere else. And you think that that's applicable to broader manufacturing generally, not just footwear? I think that's true. I've talked to companies that have tried to reshore, and that sometimes they'll try to do it step by step. And often they'll have to bring in some of the components from abroad because their supply chain is not here. And so that's one of the interesting things when you think about the tariffs. If they hit your raw materials, they can still raise your costs for making things in the U.S. I don't want to say from this that you can't do it because Red Wing has done it. But even for a company that was operating with a number of specific advantages, they've been making shoes in the U.S. for a long time. They are privately held. They have a commitment to U.S. manufacturing. They do have their own supply and distribution chain. It's work, and we have to understand that. And again, companies I've talked to in other industries will say, we're committed to making things here, but it's hard when we've moved in one direction for a long time to sort of reverse that very quickly. After the break, a high-profile resignation in the Jeffrey Epstein scandal, and what is coming next. What is dedication? People ask how your children learn how to ride a bike, and you didn't. I just created an environment where they taught themselves, and all I had to do was be there. That's dedication. Visit fatherhood.gov to hear more. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and the Ad Council. Welcome back. I'm Ryan Knudsen. Today, Labor Secretary Alex Acosta resigned over growing criticism of a 2007 deal with financier Jeffrey Epstein, who is accused of trafficking minors for sex. Acosta was a prosecutor in an earlier case against Epstein on similar charges. In his resignation today, Acosta said he was resigning to spare the Labor Department from the controversy. 
because that 2007 deal drew a lot of criticism. The big criticism is that the 2007 deal that Jeffrey Epstein got was way too lenient for the alleged conduct. And it's a sign that there's probably more scrutiny to come of the circumstances around the 2007 deal and what exactly happened there. Nicole Hong is a legal reporter who's been covering this for The Wall Street Journal. She joined us to talk about the case against Epstein and what we can understand from today's developments. Acosta's resignation shows that the fallout from this case is just beginning. He is one of the first dominoes to drop in this, but this case will touch likely on so many people in so many different industries and parts of society. Jeffrey Epstein had so many people in his social circle throughout the years, politicians and academics, businessmen. The fallout from this is probably just beginning. Epstein has pleaded not guilty to the charges. But today's news opens questions into how many people, if any, this case will ensnare and how it will play out in the coming months. As this case moves forward and if it does go to trial, the government will need witnesses that are not just victims of the alleged sex trafficking scheme. A common defense in these types of sex abuse, sex trafficking cases is to discredit alleged victims. And the allegation here is that Jeffrey Epstein sought out women who often came from disadvantaged backgrounds, that they were particularly vulnerable. And even in the past decade, his lawyers and others who have worked with him have sought to undermine the credibility of these victims. So to really bolster the government's case, you want to corroborate their stories with records, with photographs, with testimony from other people. And there's one person Nicole wrote about who's been close with Epstein. We published a story last night focusing on the role of a British socialite named Glenn Maxwell. In a 2003 profile, Jeffrey Epstein called her his best friend. They've also been written up in tabloids to be romantically involved as well. And several alleged victims have accused her of procuring girls for him, of training them to perform massages and sexual activity to the way that he liked. Household employees said that she essentially ran the house and helped manage his life. So if these allegations are true, it sounds like she would potentially know a great deal about what was going on. Yeah, so we do not know if she is involved in the investigation right now. But one more reason why Glenn Maxwell is so important to this is because hundreds, if not thousands, of court documents from a lawsuit against her have been ordered to be unsealed in the coming weeks. And this is a big deal because this could reveal a lot more about Jeffrey Epstein's alleged scheme and reveal more about any individuals involved, including other high-profile men that may have participated. Nicole reached out to Maxwell's attorneys and didn't hear back. We don't know who, if anyone, will be next to get caught in this web. But what we do know is there's more immediate action coming. Next week, a federal judge will decide whether or not Epstein is granted bail, and if so, how much that bail will be. Prosecutors have said... He's incredibly wealthy, he has private jets, 
He has real estate overseas. He's facing up to 45 years in prison. These are very serious allegations. He has every incentive to flee. They've said he has no close family in the U.S. He's not married. He has no children. That it'd be very easy for him to post bond and then just give it all up and flee. His lawyers have said he will agree to home confinement, to GPS monitoring. He'll put up a ton of real estate. He'll have his friends put up a ton of real estate. He will deregister his private jet. He'll give us his passports. And that he wants to fight this case and stay in the U.S. to clear his name. And what do you think the judge might be considering as he looks at this particular question about bail? So there was another case a few years ago with the same judge, and there was similarly a wealthy defendant who had proposed similar bail conditions, essentially to build a private jail for himself in an apartment in Manhattan. And the judge denied that because he essentially said wealthy defendants should not be treated differently and given an opportunity to build these private jail facilities for themselves. Epstein's bail hearing is set for Monday. For the latest developments about this case, go to the Wall Street Journal's website. That's all for today, Friday, July 12th. The Journal is a co-production of Gimlet and The Wall Street Journal. It's hosted by Kate Leinbaugh and me, Ryan Knudsen. We're produced by Ricky Nevetsky, Sarah Platt, and Willa Rubin. Annie Rose Strasser is our supervising producer. Gerard Cole is our executive producer. And Griffin Tanner is our engineer. Our music this week comes from Haley Shaw and Bobby Lord from Gimlet. Additional music from Will Canzanari, Billy Libby, and Blue Dot Sessions. Special editing thanks this week to Alex Bloomberg and Rick Brooks. And thanks to Justin Lehart for his number crunching. See you on Wednesday. Thanks for listening.